Hello and welcome. This is Mike Giacopelli on A Conflict of Interest, our new podcast exploring conflict issues focusing on interpersonal relationships. Before I begin with our guest, I'd like to introduce this podcast. It originated out of a capstone project for my master's program through Creighton University in Omaha. With this podcast, we are creating a digital learning community to raise conflict awareness and improve workplace culture by challenging our mindsets. The podcast developed as a resource for attorneys, but the lessons transcend professions as conflict awareness and conflict competence are critical skills for everyday life, whether in the workplace, with your friends and family. We will build on our skills which are necessary for conflict engagement and may learn to develop new ones. Topics for this community and the upcoming episodes include trust, team building, relationships, networks, reputation, power dynamics, the importance of candor, honesty, and integrity, active listening, and negotiations. Finally, we hope to continue to expand this community so that we can share ideas, develop strategies for improving our practice, and form new relationships. The format for this podcast will be simple. Each episode will last approximately 30 minutes and will feature an interview with a member of either the legal community or a practitioner or educator in the conflict resolution community. Following each interview, we will relate some of the topics discussed to journals, articles, books, or other publications which have addressed the issues that we dealt with during the interview. Hopefully, these academic writings will help provide a framework for our continued conversations. More importantly, though, it is my hope that the writings will help demonstrate that conflict issues are all around us. Many times, we simply fail to acknowledge that it is a conflict that we are in, and this failure to acknowledge and understand the conflict situation could lead to greater conflict. We are trying to become more competent in conflicts and conflict awareness. So that is the framework for the podcast. A brief introduction about myself. I am a partner at Lewis Brisbois, licensed to practice in New York and New Jersey, and have been with the firm for the last six and a half years, working out of their lower Manhattan offices. In addition, I am completing my Master's of Sciences degree in negotiation and conflict resolution from Creighton. I live in New Jersey with my wife and two children. Before we begin this podcast journey, I need to make something clear. I do not have all the answers. In Brene Brown's most recent book, Dare to Lead, she relays a story that resonates here. She says, I am a traveler, not a map maker. I am going down this path, same as, and with you. So for me, I am not an expert on conflict theory. I've explored these concepts and have tried to apply some of these skills, but I continue to learn. I'm eager to travel with you, and I hope you enjoy this episode of A Conflict of Interest. Today we have John Duty, a partner with our New York office of Lewis Brisbois. For anyone who may be listening that's not familiar with the firm, I'll quickly note that we are a national full-service law firm with more than 1,300 attorneys from coast to coast, with 44 offices in 26 states. We are listed among the prestigious AmLaw 100 and ranked ninth in the Law 360 400 list of the nation's largest law firms. John, welcome to the inaugural episode of our podcast. Hello, Michael. Thank you for having me. John's part of our New York trial team here at Lewis Brisbois, which consists of about 10 attorneys. There are 120 attorneys or more at our New York office, so John is in a real exclusive category. He's also licensed to practice in Connecticut and Florida. John went to Brooklyn, Brooklyn Tech, an elite New York high school, then on to Brooklyn College, followed by Fordham University School of Law. Thank you for joining me, John. I am excited for our conversation. As I mentioned in the opening, this is a podcast that will explore conflict issues, focusing specifically on interpersonal relationships. Before we get into those conflict areas, though, John, can you tell us a little bit about your background following law school? 
out of law school, actually during law school, uh, I worked at a, another large uh, insurance defense firm, primarily headquartered in New York, Wilson Elser Moskowitz Settlement and Dicker, uh, where I continued uh, on as an associate upon my graduation. Uh, initially, uh, I worked in the fields of uh, labor law in New York, which is more concerned with uh, injured construction workers, as well as doing a great deal of uh, premises security litigation, uh, which we happen to specialize in uh, in New York. And that concerns mostly, or concerned at the time, mostly uh, inadequate security claims arising out of uh, injured tenants or visitors uh, to uh, premises, primarily defending the owners in those cases. Uh, when I joined Wilson Elser, it was um, it was a firm where I was able to get a litigation experience immediately. Um, at the time, you know, it was very large, and they had some smaller cases where they would give opportunities to associates immediately upon admission uh, to conduct depositions, go to court, write motions, argue motions, and do that sort of things, uh, which was outstanding because you really weren't able to get much experience uh, such as that unless you were working for, say, a municipality. So early on uh, at Wilson Elser, the experience and, and the attorneys that I uh, was working with really geared me uh, towards litigation. So what about being a, a trial attorney, being involved in litigation captivated you? Well, I didn't want to be uh, doing, um, you know, paperwork, transactional work, that kind of stuff. Uh, I felt like, you know, uh, litigation was more uh, up my alley because having you know grown up and, and, and competed uh, throughout my childhood in athletics and, and other endeavors I felt like that was more an area where I would uh, enjoy it and get some um, get some reward out of it uh, with you know results at the end of the day how did athletics play a role well I think I think what you learn in athletics is you know what goes on between the white lines is really you know where you leave that which is why we should be able to get along with our adversaries, you know, both before, during, and even after a, a competition, as well as an event such as a trial. Uh, trials are pressure-packed uh, events, but that doesn't mean that, you know, when the trial's over for the day or it's over for good, that you can't be civil and get along with your adversaries. What? What are the values and the characteristics that you see in a really good trial attorney? Well, for me, you know, having worked uh, with and among some, some really fine trial lawyers, uh, the ability to think on one's feet and the ability to not just go by a script uh, as you are dealing with the witnesses, but to be able to listen to what they're telling you and fashion your next question based upon the answers that you receive as opposed to not looking up from your script and just following it and going along. Um, the ability to take in the testimony as it's coming at you and the jury and tailor your next question to bring out your point to the jury based upon the answers you've received. So to me, during the trial, that is probably the uh, the most important factor and, 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 a, and a good indicator of success while the trial is going on. Obviously, preparation, intense preparation, and knowing the case very well before you even get started is very, very important. 
it's great that you mentioned listening as one of the most you know most important characteristics of a trial attorney because you know in the, in the conflict resolution in the conflict field listening active listening is is also one of the most important um, skill sets that you need to develop and so you know for you to bring up listening as as the thing that you hone in on uh, that that's perfect here so can you tell me about life as a trial attorney you know what what's your mindset how do you focus what are you doing during the day how do you eliminate the distractions well at this stage of the game you know I've been doing it for a, a sufficient amount of time such that you know when you're in it you know it's what you're doing um, and if you are going to focus on doing trials you really do have to kind of you know put the other stuff you're doing other cases you're handling, discovery deadlines, stuff you may owe another party in a different case, all of that stuff uh, needs to be put into the background. Hopefully you have appropriate personnel that can handle these matters and take care of it while you're out of the office and on trial because essentially, you know, I know for me, I become myopic when I'm on trial, focusing primarily, if not completely, on the trial, what happened that day, what's happening the next day, Although there certainly are other attorneys who are able to compartmentalize and, you know, when they walk out of the courtroom that day, they can maybe do stuff for two or three hours that's unrelated to the trial. That being said, you never have the opportunity to focus solely on the trial. If you're handling a caseload, other stuff is going to come up. You are going to have to respond to emails and, you know, we are in the customer service business. So we have to ensure that none of our other cases or anything the clients are asking about falls through the cracks while you're on trial. Although clients are particularly understanding uh, of your time constraints while you're on trial because they all have lawyers that do try cases for them. So they know what's going on and they've been through trials themselves. What types of conflicts do you encounter while you're on trial? Well, it all, you know, a lot of that arises out of your adversary, um, the position that they take, uh, as well as your co-defendants, um, court clerks who are sending you out to jury selection, uh, whatever judge may be called upon to deal with any conflicts, disagreements that may arise during the course of jury selection, uh, how the other parties are going to go about jury selection. Um, or very early on, you may encounter a plaintiff's lawyer who's looking to basically try his case in jury selection, put forth the facts uh, to the jury, try to get them tainted. Uh, if they do not like the panel that they're given, perhaps going to the extent of, you know, trying to get a, get a jury uh, panel, you know, busted based upon the nature that they go about uh, entering into, you know, the jury uh, the jury selection process and being, you know, evocative in, in that respect. So we can start very early on and it all depends upon who you wind up trying the case against and with and before. And how do you handle it when, when those sorts of conflict issues arise? Uh, if, if a conflict arises that early where you're already, you know, having to go see the judge based upon an, an adverse party's counsel's behavior and presentation that early, then I think you understand and you get your backup 
thinking that there's going to be a lot more confrontation following therefrom. In an instance such as that, you do try to deal with it with counsel, telling them basically, look, you, you know better than to be doing this. You know you're not here to try your case. You can only give limited facts about both the incident and the injury. And really, if you intend to go about it in this fashion, then I'm not going to have any other choice than to really fill in all the gaps that you leave out when you're presenting your case to the jury and jury selection. And then essentially we're both picking a jury where we're trying our case and extending the jury selection process much longer than it needs to be extended. Uh, over these last uh, couple of minutes, you were talk you've, you've been talking about different players that you encounter as a trial attorney. You, you have your adversaries, your co-defendants, the judge, the jury. How do the power dynamics come into play? You know, who's, who's in charge? You know, well, and, you know, in jury selection uh, in New York state practice, uh, we, the lawyers are in charge of jury selection. Unless something becomes so insurmountable and the parties are so disagreeable, you'll, you'll conduct jury selection on your own. Unless, again, you have to have like a judicial hearing officer assigned to deal with all the disagreements. But then all you do is get yourself into trouble with the court and... You know, going into it, they say, uh, here's parties who can't get along. This could wind up being, you know, a pissing match and childish and uh, lawyers fighting in front of the jury, which you never want. Um, with regard to the trial, uh, the judge is in charge. John, how, how do you balance the, the different power grabs uh, when you're actually at trial between the your adversary is trying to influence the jurors, the judge trying to make the decisions, you know, or, do you, or, or can you balance the power? It, it, it all depends really on the strength of the judge who's presiding. Um, if the parties see that we have a weak judge, then it may well become a free-for-all where each party is looking to assert uh, their power, their dominance, take over the presentation of the case, perhaps try to get away with questions that may or may not be appropriate under the circumstances. So a lot of that, you know, depends upon how the judge runs the courtroom. Um, and, and a lot of times you will see attorneys themselves testing the judge, testing the other attorneys, uh, and, and, you know, objecting when they really know there's no reason to object just to see perhaps if they can get the attorneys who, who's up doing the questioning to get, get off their game a little bit or perhaps you know, throwing unnecessary objections out there early to see how the judge is going to rule on those objections, whether or not the judge is going to be a stickler and ask for, say, an evidentiary basis for the objection, if the judge is going to permit speaking objections, and really a feel for how the courtroom is going to be run and basically testing the limits to see how much you can get away with within the bounds, you know, of the trial. John, how do you deal with it when, when, one, when an adversary is trying to, to push the, the boundaries of what's acceptable? You know, a lot of that is fluid. So it depends on what we perceive to be the jury's uh, feelings about how the attorney, you know, is acting, uh, what their feelings are regarding the judge and how strong or weak the judge is going to be. So a lot of it depends on how we think that his or her behavior pushing the bounds is going, you know, with regard to how the jury perceives of it. 
for instance, if there is a, an attorney that's going way overboard, being completely argumentative, ignoring the judge, you may want to allow the attorney to just continue in that vein because you know, he, may just, he or she may just appear to be a jackass to the jury by doing so. Obviously, if it's going to be effective to the jury, then you want to counteract that you know, with your own force and your own strength of the case to try to not necessarily act the same, but approach it in a manner that's more logical and understated, perhaps, if you have a screamer and yeller on the other hand, in bringing it you know, before the jury in a manner that's not you know, scorched earth. We spoke a lot about being prepared and listening and you know, dealing with an adversary. It, when you're on trial with somebody, do you try to form a relationship with that person? Uh, listen, you, you form a professional relationship. Um, am I going out drinking and, and having dinner with a lot of the uh, adverse attorneys that I try cases with? No. Uh, with regard to the relationship, again, being on a defense side, that's more driven by how the plaintiff goes about things. And it starts very early on. And you could really get a feel, even during discovery, how the attorney is handling the case. Are they forthcoming? Are they cutting corners? Are they being lazy? Uh, are they forthright with you with the evidence they have? So you, you would know, you really know that going in and how they act at trial, you know, will just be really the cherry on top unless you come across a, a firm that hires trial counsel. A lot of those you may know their reputation already, uh, but it all depends on how they act, how forthcoming they are, uh, because we do have to you know, get along with and agree with counsel because there are numerous, numerous items during the course of the trial from evidence to, to documents to trial scheduling where the attorneys really are forced to agree uh, based upon, you know, the trial scheduling and the way the trial is laid out. That's how a relationship looks with your adversary. How does a relationship look with the jurors who you're not allowed to talk to? Do you have mannerisms? Do you have a way of approaching them? You, you don't interact with the jury outside of, the, outside of them sitting there and listening to you. Um, you can't say hello to them in the hallway. Do you try to form a relationship with the jury in some way? Well, again, in jury selection, you know, I, what I do is I, I act like myself. I don't really think that I, I, I want to change who I am or what I, how I act in front of the jury. In jury selection, you do have the opportunity to interact with, to question, and, and to give answers to the jurors. So I think that serves the basis you know, for starting your relationship with jurors. You get a feel for how they react to certain things you say. And at times during the course of the trial, you can direct certain aspects of your case to a juror in particular or a group of jurors based upon what you learn about them during the selection process. Beyond that, you know, you just try to put forth your case uh, in the best manner. Don't be disagreeable. Don't be insulting to the jury. Don't speak down to them. You know, just like you would anybody else that you meet. And you talk about uh, meeting them first in the, that jury selection. I, I heard you talk to a jury uh, a few weeks back, and you said something that was, it, it's so obvious, but it really shows how conflict is involved in your daily life. And that's, that's when you said to the jury, we have an issue that we need your help resolving. Now, my practice is I, I try to call 
plaintiff's counsel and you know, collaborate with them and try to reach a resolution that meets both of our needs. You told the jury straight straight out, after, after six years of this case going forward, we now need your help. So, you know, when, when you are, are looking at the different conflict styles, you have a collaborative or cooperative approach, and then this really competitive, aggressive approach. How do, how do those styles, you know, make sense at trial? How do they play out? Well, we talk to the jury and, and, and let them know that because, quite frankly, all the collaborative efforts and attempts at resolution have been exhausted. And that's why we're in that position and why we need the jury to ultimately decide these things. And, you know, in that trial, we had the experience, as the judge kept reminding everybody, it's never too late to settle a case. You know, during the entire course of the case, the judge encouraged the parties to undertake the collaborative effort and to get together and try to resolve cases because at the end of the day, I think that's what uh, all of the sides want. They want finality. They don't want this hanging out there. They don't want to deal with more years of appellate practice and, and that kind of stuff. So there certainly is a place for that. And I think the statistics are overwhelming about how the cases, how cases are come to finality. I think the overwhelming majority of them are resolved, settled. But at the end of the day, if that can't be the case, then we do need to be set to go to trial and to have the case tried before a jury, you know, in a, you know, um, an adversarial manner. I mean, that's the nature of our system. John, let, let's switch gears for a minute and, and talk about trusts and reputations as a trial attorney. Is there a time when you were on trial and the other side, your adversary or someone else, did something that compromised their reputation and how important is reputation for a trial attorney? You know, being cynical, and it's rather unfortunate, uh, I don't think that, you know, reputation, unfortunately, has all that big an impact on, certainly not the judges, uh, the jurors don't know about your reputation, uh, especially in personal injury actions. Uh, during the course of trial, I've seen uh, adversary counsel do a lot of uh, things that were not necessarily, uh, I think, to be honest, you know, straight. Um, I've, I've encountered situations where, um, you know, the other side has withheld uh, documents from evidence that, you know, have been subpoenaed or come up with additional documents during the course of a trial that they said, you know, were returned with the subpoena. Uh, I have seen uh, instances where witnesses who we have been in contact with all of a sudden fall out of contact with us. Uh, which is, you know, becomes obvious during the course of the trial that evidence is either being, you know, pushed or hidden. Um, I mean, you call them out on it, you try to get the judge involved. The judges often don't want to get involved in those interpersonal squabbles during the course of the trial and will allow the evidence to come in uh, as it comes in. It's just something you learn as you go along that, you know, you have to be wary uh, of the other side when, when situations like that arise. And unfortunately, they, they arise more often than, than you would think because the other side always has to push it just a little bit because there's a lot of money at stake in these cases. So are you, are you expecting something to, to happen like that? You prepare so much for a trial and you think that you have all, everything ready to go. Is there always a piece of you, you know, I'm 90% ready and I know that there's gonna be 10% here. 
Yeah, you know that there's always going to be something that you, you didn't realize or couldn't prepare for uh, as you were leading to trial because that's just the nature of what happens during the trial. You know, certain things come up that you have to deal with. Uh, other things don't come up that, that you expected you would have to deal with. So as I said earlier, it's always, you know, a fluid thing, trials. You think, you know, as you prepare your witness what they're going to say, but when they get on the stand, it's out of your hands and you never really are 100% sure. But you should always be prepared uh, for, you know, some un unexpected things to arise and the reputation of the attorney or attorneys on the other side, be it uh, co-defendants and or plaintiffs, will give you a little guidance on when you should expect things to come up that you know you wouldn't expect and or agreements that you have in place going into a trial not to be honored you know i love that that to be prepared for the unexpected because there has to be a piece of your mindset when when you're at trial to to know that i can't be flustered by every little thing that comes up that that was unexpected so you need to be prepared so that the jury sees the same person you know as if it was before um, that issue and not only that comes with experience knowing that things are going to come up and allow, and allowing the proceedings to slow down the longer you're doing this the slower it becomes so you can kind of you know do it at your own pace not feel rushed not worried about everything that's going on and just be you know at that time where it's slowed down enough where you can think about answers and then formulate your next question not feel rushed not feel concerned about being in a courtroom uh, with an audience there such that you're nervous and have to worry about getting through it as opposed to taking it as its pace and doing it you know slowly and methodically and effectively can you prepare for that or is that ex just experience based well listen if you know the case if you know the ins and outs of it then there really should be no pressure on you. You should be able to deal with everything as it arises. The comfort level comes with time. I mean, you're not gonna be comfortable doing something in a larger case unless you've done it before. How do you, how do you keep your emotions in check when, when something comes up that's unexpected or, or you're hit with a curveball? Well, at times there are you know, there are occasions where you don't want to keep your emotions in check, where you want to uh, be, be an emotional for the jury so you can convey to the jury um, how important this is to you and your client, most importantly the client, and, and that you can be outraged. A lot of that is feigned. A lot of the, you know, long-time attorneys who, who try cases do have that element, you know, in their arsenal that they can pull out and, you know... Uh, act like you know they're personally offended and how dare you and really you know all of the parties other than the jury themselves know that that's you know righteous indignation that can be feigned at times is that if that type of fury you know that type of emotion is inauthentic can the jury see that can they sense it i don't know i think a lot of you know what you do as a trial lawyer and and, and when you're summing up an opening and you know out there with witnesses on the stand and you're, you're playing to the jury a lot of it is a lot of acting that you get comfortable with the more you do it and again you know if it's inappropriate you might want to avoid it you don't want to use it constantly uh you want to pick your spots so it can be effective is there a time where uh 
someone in the courtroom has broken your trust and were they able to rebuild it and what did that look like? Well, you know, the, the, the most, probably where I've had my trust broken the most was in a particular case where it was done at the hands of the judge. When the judge was attempting to get the case resolved, um, was untruthful with the parties about the ongoing settlement discussions, uh, took that to be something that was okay by her, and when it was ineffective, then came down on our my client during the course of the trial and was clearly unhappy with the position we took and used that you know against us with respect to rulings, uh, allowing evidence in, uh, keeping evidence out, and it became the most adversarial trial I've ever been a part, a part of, and unfortunately, the main adversary in that case was, was on the bench. Hmm. Did you, were you able to ever express that to, to the judge? Oh yeah, I, expect, I expressed I, it like? to the judge. It looked like her and I, you know, arguing with each other in chambers where I, uh, I advised her I was, you know, not pleased and not appreciative of the position she had taken uh, in attempting to resolve the case with our client present and, and the ramifications that she took from that and expressed to our client during the course of the trial. She, you know, maintained that she had no such intention and, and she was objective throughout but it just it did not go well and unfortunately you know judicial temperament is not um, all that great uh, in the New York State court system particularly uh, downstate you know in the boroughs. Now, I, I don't know if you've tried a, another case with her um, but if, if you have another case can she rebuild that trust or uh, listen, if she was objective in the next case, if you know we were able to discuss what she expected during the course of this case, I have no problem with it. To me, you know, they're like umpires in a game. I think the problem, unfortunately, would be more on her end that she might hold on to stuff uh, more than you know than I would. But again, she may have considered you know that I was disrespectful to her, and you know in her position. As, as a judge. So I don't know. Right. Here's a, a self-reflective question for you, John. It, if I asked one of your adversaries what they would say about how John handles conflict, what would they say? Well, you know, I've had the opportunity actually having my sister, you know, practice in the same general area, and, and I mean the same geographical area, that I'm sort of familiar with that, fee with what that feedback is. Um, I would like to think that they would consider to me consider me to be a stand-up fellow, in that you know when they have a conflict with me, uh, I'll be straight up with them and tell them you know what the basis of that conflict is, uh, why I think my position is right and why I think their position is wrong, and that I won't change that you know and back out of what we have been discussing you know in the conflict. Uh, I think you know I feel like my reputation is that I'm a straight shooter and I. I haven't really screwed over any of the other, of my adversaries, you know, basically throughout the entire course of my career. How do you get better? What, what do you do to get better? How do you improve your skills? You, you know, a, a lot of it is doing it, um, learning to do it, thinking on your feet, but a great deal of it is, and you know, there's no, there's no substitute for it, is in our kinds of cases, 
to learn the medicine. And there's a lot of medicine involved in the cases that we try, particularly with respect to the injuries the plaintiffs sustain, the treatments they've undergone, the surgeries that have been performed, the necessity for that surgery, the indicators for it, recovery time, uh, and then the prognosis in the future as well as what future treatment will be necessary in cases. So there is no substitute for learning the medicine in any case. Also, it would not hurt to learn a little economics uh, in cases where you have large wage loss claims, and a lot of that has to do with unions, benefits, and all of that kind of stuff. So really, you know, that kind of stuff, knowing that gives you a lot of, um, a, a lot of, uh, it's very, very useful information to have, and you get better uh, each time you do that. I know, you know, the, the, the last knee case I tried, I was a lot better than the first knee case I tried because I was familiar with the medicine involved in the knee. Do you have any advice for uh, our listeners who might want to pursue being a trial attorney? Well, my advice would be that as far as lawyering, it's probably the best thing you can do. Um, it is a high calling. There are a lot of ethical ground rules that you must comply with. Beyond that, it's all about hard work, preparation, uh, getting out there and doing it, meeting with the witnesses, make sure you interact with people, uh, run your case by you know, the people in your life to see what their reactions are to it just in a, in a general way that, hey, I got this case and the plaintiff says this, what do you think of that story? Uh, all of that goes uh, a nice way to getting a feel for what people outside of our profession think about what we do in court and really what, what goes through their mind uh, with regard to what evidence they deem to be you know, important in cases as opposed to stuff that they deem to be extraneous. And you know, among six jurors, it's not really going to be the same all that often for all six of them. I think that's a, a great, great place to uh, conclude our interview. Uh, John Duty from Lewis Brisbane, I want to thank you so much uh, for being a part of our podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Mike. Be well. So I end this episode with a call for self-reflection and self-awareness, which I truly hope will be a recurring theme as you listen along. Larry Dressler wrote about the importance of being honest with ourselves in his book, Standing in the Fire. He wrote, We are culturally programmed from a very early age to value having answers over searching for answers. Being receptive requires a willingness to say three words that in many organizations signal weakness. I don't know. Dressler asks us to test these words by imagining that we are in a meeting and someone asks, where do we go from here? Now we respond with, I don't know. What do you feel and notice in your body? What is your posture like? How do you think others view you in that moment? He continues, it's not what we don't know that gets us into trouble. It's what we think we know. Dressler concludes, when we fail to remember that our teachers are all around us, we are sleepwalking through life. So I think these are important insights for this episode because we need to be aware of our own limitations and have that self-awareness even if we are the trial attorney that is expected to have the answers. 
Without that self-awareness, we are not going to be able to become conflict-competent. We will not be able to see how others view us. We will not be able to understand how trust works. We will not be able to be in a position where we are standing in our values and are guided by them. We should be courageous enough to admit what we don't know. This is a podcast where we can explore, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you for listening, and thanks to John Duty for his willingness to dive into these issues. Until next time, this was a conflict of interest.